Welcome to Deal of the Week. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. This is Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers, and acquisitions. Thanks for listening. Great show this week. We'll be speaking with Eric Zinterhofer, a founding partner of New York-based Searchlight Capital Partners. That's a private equity firm that's invested in companies including Hunter Boots, Cengage Learning, and the retailer Roots. He left his cushy job as a senior partner at Apollo Capital to start his own firm. And he's also on the board, in fact, he's the chairman of the board, at Charter Communications, which is in the midst of completing its mega deal to buy Time Warner Cable. So he's got a great perspective on M&A. That's in just a few minutes. Uh, But first, it's time for this week's What's the Big Deal? And we turn to Bloomberg M&A reporter and my colleague Ed Hammond to discuss an aerospace deal that was eventually rejected. United Technology is walking away from a merger with Honeywell. These two companies have a combined market value of more than $150 billion. So we're talking mega deal here. So, hey, Ed, welcome back to Deal of the Week. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So first, let's start from the basics here. What exactly do United Technologies and Honeywell do? Uh, how long have you got? They do so much stuff. I mean, these are these are like proper proper conglomerates in the in the old sense of the word. So they, you know, they between them they make elevators, they make thermostats, they make sat navs, they make a lot of building products. Obviously, you mentioned avionics, and uh, they make a lot of engines. And in Honeywell's case, they also make galoshes or Wellington boots, as you would probably call them here. So they. Yes, my Wellington boots. No, we call them galoshes. Galoshes, there you go. Yeah. Um, so they, they make stuff, these companies. They're big makers of stuff. Yes. Uh, yeah, and like heavy-duty stuff. Mostly heavy-duty stuff, although obviously within... And galoshes. Yeah, yeah and galoshes. And, and, and then some more sort of, I suppose, what you might consider uh, semi-tech stuff, like the kind of the thermostats and a lot of fire safety equipment, which is very high-end. Um, and then also, I suppose, within the avionics and the engines, there is some very, very specialized kit in there as well. So what do we know about what happened here and what didn't happen? So we're still trying to kind of pick that apart. And obviously, there are two very different versions of events, one from the Honeywell side, one from the UTX side. Um, But it looks like the company started talking around sort of uh, early spring um, last year. And it, it, it was UTX who actually initiated the conversation so they came to Honeywell and at that point they were slightly the the larger of the two companies by market value and they said look we think we should do a merger we think it makes sense we think the antitrust risk is actually relatively low despite us having some fairly concentrated overlaps Um, and the two companies continued to talk and it sounds like social issues were holding it up at that point you had a very new chief executive United Tech and a very long-standing chief executive Honeywell and United Tech wanted to essentially control the combined this was not something Honeywell wanted to swallow. So they didn't get together over social issues. It looks like the talks went back and forth. Around about sort of the back end of last year, their market cap swapped quite dramatically. Honeywell is now the bigger company by quite some significant number of billions of dollars. And Honeywell then came back and said, well, why don't we do a merger of equals? That was rebuffed. They came out more recently, I think as recently as last week, and said, why don't we do an all-out takeover of you guys? Um, and they offered them $108 a share, which was about a 20% premium to UTX's share price last week. UTX have come out since and said, absolutely no way. And interestingly, they said, no way, because of the antitrust risk, there's no way this is going to fly. And why does it make sense, like theoretically, for these two companies to come together? So I think, you know, the it, it, let's turn the antitrust argument on its head. The, there is some 
overlap. I think the analysts have been out saying there's about 15% of the com- you know, the two companies would be a sort of concentrated overlap. But most of that would be within the engines and avionics. And the thing here is that those are very, very specialized things. So by owning two engines divisions, you're not necessarily cannibalizing or even taking too much share of, of one market and too much control. Because if you think about it, if you're uh, Boeing, you're only going to fit your engine, your planes with the engines that they're designed to take. You're not suddenly going to start buying Honeywell engines when you've been buying UTX engines and vice versa. So I think it makes sense because in spite of having this overlap and probably therefore being able to get quite good savings, I think the synergies they predicted were about 8% of UTX's current sales, which is a fairly high number. Um, so despite the overlap, they can extract very good synergies from this deal and also um, they could probably, at least in Honeywell's mind, they could probably get this through um, through regulators fairly easily. So is this deal dead, dead? Like, is, there's no way this is going to happen? Uh, it looks increasingly like that probably is the case. I think Honeywell have been fairly uh, clear that this isn't something they're prepared to pursue on a hostile basis. And, and there's not another company that might jump in and make a bid for UTX? I think it's unlikely. I mean, the la- so the last iteration of this deal was actually the other way around. Again, so Honeywell in 2000 tried to buy UTX. Um, the talks were progressing. And then General Electric tried to jump the Honeywell bid. And eventually that kind of drove Honeywell away. And General Electric also then didn't go through with it thing. So you could look at General Electric as possibly being uh, an interloper here, although I have been told from uh, from fairly reliable sources that that is very, very unlikely at this point. Does the fact that this deal was discussed and then didn't happen, is this more indicative of what we're likely to see in 2016? In other words, two big companies discussing a mega deal and then not going through with it, whereas, you know, maybe we could say 2015 was the year of the mega deal. Yeah, I think I think certainly for the first part of 2016, so probably you know the first quarter, if not the first half of the year, that is going to be a trend we see. And the reason that that's going to be so is because a lot of these deals are deals that they were discussed last year when they probably did make a lot more sense. You know, either the target felt that they were going to get a fair price, or the buyer in some cases probably felt that their stock was very strong and therefore they could use that as currency. I think what's happened now is obviously you've had this volatility and you've had a lot of share prices come off. So if you're on the target side, you might say, well, you know what, we've lost 30% of our value. So why on earth are we going to sell now? Our shareholders will crucify us. We'll wait till we get back up. And on the buyer side, they might be looking at the targets falling and saying, you know, we're catching a falling knife. If we wait six months or a year, maybe they'll be worth another 30% less than they are today. So the last time you were on this show, we, which was a very popular episode of this show, we talked a little bit about inside baseball in terms of uh, how stories are broken. So I am curious, this particular story, most of the time when we have Bloomberg reporters on the show, they talk about stories they've broken. This particular story was broken by CNBC reporter David Faber, who somehow got wind of this. Uh how do you think this deal was leaked? Um, <clears throat> so it's a, it's a sensitive question, so I'll try and be um, appropriately sensitive in my answer to it. Look, David Faber did break this, and, and obviously you know, a huge hat tip for him for, for getting what is a very, very, very large deal, even if it doesn't actually come together. Um, my suspicion on this one is probably that it, w- it was someone on the United Tech side who is frustrated, perhaps, that United Tech are not wanting to go through with this, um, and potentially, therefore, 
thought if they got it on CNBC and it was, you know, it was positioned on CNBC in a very careful way where it wasn't sort of saying, you know, the talks are live and this thing's going to happen. It was it was really just a, a very good statement of the facts, which is, look, these talks have gone on. They stalled. Uh, United Tech isn't interested in doing a deal. But, you know, there is obviously there has been some historic discussion here. And my guess in you would often look at, you know, the, the acquirer in these situations and say, well, they must have done this because it's only in their interest to um, to leak this kind of information, put pressure on. But this one is, I think I would be surprised if Honeywell were the source of this. So I would think it was someone either close to United Tech or someone who at least had a familiarity with what was going on here between the two companies and felt that United Tech shouldn't be rejecting the offer and United Tech should indeed be at the table discussing it. Do you expect to continue to report this deal or do you think this one is shelved uh and you're going to move on with your life um well i always try and move on with my life when we've reported on the deal because there's always a million more deals to try and report on so i'm not going to solely focus on this of course but i but i think it's it's big enough and it would certainly be interesting enough if it were to happen for us to keep paying attention to it so i think it's one way and and i'm sure others will be keeping a very close eye on to see what happens next? I think, as I say, Honeywell are not going to go hostile in this release. That, that would be very surprising at this point. Um, but I don't think they've necessarily given up on it. I think they probably will come back to the table. And also now it's public. It'll be very interesting to see what United shareholders have to say about it and how much pressure they put on the board and management of the company to um, get back at the table. Ed Hammond, Bloomberg M&A reporter, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Okay, I want to introduce Eric Sinterhofer, co-founder of the private equity firm Searchlight Capital Partners, joining us in studio. Hi, Eric. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. And also private equity reporter here at Bloomberg, Kyle Porter. Hey, Kyle. Hi, Alex. So, Eric, let's start with a brief career timeline for you here. Take us sort of on a quick jaunt through how you ended up founding Searchlight and what attracted you to private equity. Well, uh, you know, it's and I was I went to Penn in college, so I was surrounded by business-minded people, even though I didn't study Wharton. Business, I, I didn't do Wharton. Okay. I was in the I was in the college, which was a disadvantage in getting jobs. Uh, but I decided I didn't want to be an economist, so I went and started working at J.P. Morgan uh, right out of college in the investment management group, and I figured I'd learn how to invest in J.P. Morgan investment management. And so from there, I switched to Morgan Stanley and did kind of this classic investment banking analyst program for two years in the energy group. And after 18-hour days, seven days a week of indentured servitude, I applied to business school, uh, mainly to recover and try to figure out what to do next. And in the summer in between business school years, I started at a firm called Apollo. This was back in 1997. Where'd you go to business school? I went to Harvard. And uh, and then joined Apollo full time after I graduated business school. And at the time, it was a small firm. I mean, it was we were on Sixth Avenue. It's probably thirteen to fifteen investment professionals, uh, excluding real estate. We were all generalists, and obviously, the firm grew tremendously over those thirteen years. And you know, about the summer of two thousand ten is when uh, Oliver Errol and I left to start Searchlight. Uh, we'd been talking about it for sometime before that, and ultimately you know, made the decision to go out on our own. So it's been about five years, which feels like about five minutes. It's unbelievable. And so walk us through the thought process of starting your own firm. What turned you on to the idea? What gave you the confidence that you could be able to do this? 
Well, probably stupidity to start. It wasn't exactly a logical decision. Especially yeah. in 2010. Ex- I mean, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was a tough fundraising environment. We were coming out of the Great Recession. Uh, it was really a 20-year bet that we could build a firm. And I think, you know, first and foremost, there's this desire to be entrepreneurial that you can't deny. You know, it supersedes almost everything when you're setting up your own firm. And that's you know, not not everybody needs that or wants that. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. It's just the way that we were wired, um, and so that was important. And then I think also we wanted to get back to a size of firm that was more reminiscent of Oliver's early days at KKR and my early days at Apollo. And uh, we felt like if we could get back to that type of platform and we could shape it the way we wanted to, it could be very successful. Um, so we kind of set out to do this. And we kind of compounded the difficulty of it because it was three guys in different, who hadn't worked together before uh, trying to build a really interesting, we had strong track records, but trying to build a platform that was transatlantic in nature. Ultimately, we managed to raise money. We actually exceeded our target, which was um, very fortunate um, in that first fund. Um, and uh, we raised about $860 million against a target of $750 million. And... Since then, it's kind of we've been busy investing it. We finished investing that fund actually, um, you know, kind of last year, and raised a new pool of capital, which we're now investing. Why did you end up focusing on TMT? That's a good question. You know, a lot of it has to do, like anything in life, with kind of there's a little bit of a confluence of interest and timing. But when I came out of business school, it was 1998, and the media and telecom bubble was reaching its like Apex at that point. And I was going to this value-oriented investment firm. A lot of my business school classmates thought I was crazy. And when I got to Apollo, you know, we were watching, you know, these valuations were going crazy. <clears throat> I remember um, um, Global Crossing came in for seed capital, which we thought was, we turned down. We didn't think it was a great idea um, to build undersea cable for a ton of money and hope that people will fill it up. And I'd say, you know, within a year and a half, it was like a $20 billion market cap company. And we were kind of scratching our heads. You know, we could have put in $20 million and been made billions of dollars. And there was this whole confusion on our side on what was going on. Uh, fortunately, we, you know, we didn't really do that much in it. And I kind of joked that the, you could have picked the top when, when Apollo went casual in terms of dress code. That was pretty much the top of the market right there. Leon gave in, and the market crashed about three months later, but we stayed casual. You know, He let the genie out of the bottle. And, uh, and then when the market did crash, uh, there were some interesting um, buying opportunities. And that's kind, of, that's kind of when I got really involved in it. Apollo going casual is like Dylan going electric. It's, you know, everyone knows. Yeah, it's a real... A real mark in time. So let's let's talk a little bit about the private equity market now, as you see it. Well, let's let's stay in the in the tech, media, telecom world, um, since I know that's your expertise. How has sort of your investing uh, thought process changed between, let's say, you know, thirteen, fifteen years ago, and where we are now? Well, it's it it is definitely evolved, um, and it's really a lot of it is informed by how the communications market has evolved. In the early 2000s, uh, for me at least, the theme was very much still about 
getting the infrastructure in place to enable all these things that we now do. Um, you know, I invested very heavily in places like Germany, where the cable network looked like the cable network that we grew up with when we were 10 years old. And it was one way, 30 channels. Uh, and over the next several years, we completely transformed and upgraded that network into a normal broadband network that enables everything that we have in these offices or elsewhere. And, and on the wireless side, we were doing the same thing, you know, investing in wireless networks to build out ubiquity and tower networks, which is the underlying infrastructure for that. We did that in all different places, in Switzerland and in Germany and the U.S. And so I just felt very good at that point in time about that, that infrastructure bet. And, and you know, the timing of it was good because there had been some capital put in. So you know, a lot of the CapEx had already been spent. Um, we needed to do another round of it, but it was that second layer of capital that was the more profitable layer. As you kind of fast forward to today, there's still those opportunities, and we still invest in those at Searchlight, but a lot of it is about investing in ideas, brands, or concepts that can really be accelerated by broadband, by the underlying networks that have been built, by social media that's layered on top of it, and all of these things. So, for example, you know, we own Hunter Boots. We own Roots in Canada. Those are really strong brands in particularly their home markets, but increasingly globally. And your ability to expand those brands and awareness of those is totally changed. It couldn't be more different. Ten years ago, you'd have to advertise in magazines. You'd maybe do if you maybe billboards. Uh, you'd have retail stores and maybe wholesale. Today, it's about e-commerce. It's about expanding your brands on social media. It's about influencers. It's about 10-second clips for Snapchat or something along those lines. And it's about just being authentic and having high quality and being sustainable and all these things that people care about, millennials in particular, who are big buyers of brands care about. So everything that enables brands is totally different from 10 years ago. Uh, we own an education business, which is another interesting one, which is textbooks. Well, you know, that's all moving digital now. And um, the benefits of that are pretty interesting because professors can grade a lot faster, so they save a huge amount of time. You can track my progress versus somebody else's differently and teach them differently. And so we're kind of sometimes taking these traditional businesses that have good content or good brands or, or real meaning but accelerating them because of what's evolved really over the last decade. It's really interesting to hear you talk in such detail about the portfolio. One of the big criticisms of private equity is that it's just debt junkies coming in, buying companies and hoping to flip them. Where would you say you are pulling levers to improve the companies that you've bought? Well, we try to do that. Um, we have run a relatively concentrated portfolio. Uh, we have, at this point, 12 investments across the whole firm. So. We spend a lot of time on those things. And it's part of our thesis going in uh, because one of the things we believe, you know, stepping back is we're, we're more value oriented typically in what we do, but private equity has evolved a lot. It's a mature business and it's, and I'd say investing in general is matured in terms of the skills, the knowledge base, the arbitrage opportunities, and all of those things. So you are also the chairman of the board of directors at Charter communication. How did that come about, first of all? 
Well, it's the, the fact that I'm still chairman is kind of serendipitous, and it's one of the more odd things career-wise. But I've been fascinating, and I've you know I've gotten it's been great um, intellectually and stimulating. But it all started because when I was at Apollo, we made an investment into Charter. Uh, we invested over a billion dollars into the debt of Charter, really at the nadir of the financial crisis in kind of late '08, early '09. So it was a big bet at a scary time uh, in what turned out to be the largest consensual restructuring in U.S. history. Charter we, went bankrupt and emerged from bankruptcy. They, had a, they did, yeah. So we bought, bought into the debt in, in anticipation of that. It, it indeed went bankrupt, emerged from bankruptcy. And we emerged with over 30% of the company. Apollo did. You know, I became chairman of the company at that point, which was logical because, you know, Apollo was the biggest investor and I was the one who had overseen the investment. And from there, uh, we had to really set about turning Charter, which was really the worst cable company in the industry, into... And that's saying something. Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, from a customer service standpoint and everything else, we really needed to transform the business. A big part of that was bringing in a new management team. And we were really lucky uh, that we were able to convince Tom Rutledge, who was running Cablevision at the time, to come and join. Uh, and that was a very fortuitous moment. And uh, he brought in a group of senior executives that really started to transform the business and have since transformed it. And you know, the combination of you know, this business that had a lot of upside in terms of operational improvement, had great tax assets coming out of bankruptcy... Uh, it was almost like a public leverage buyout with a great, you know, with this fantastic team. Caught the eye of Liberty, of, of John Malone and Greg Maffei at Liberty. Billionaire John Malone, one of the richest men in the world. And, and also one of the most astute investors in the cable and media landscape, I would argue, uh, you know, in the last 30 years. Um, so uh, Liberty approached Apollo and ended up buying Apollo's stake. Uh, and what was Apollo's return on that investment? I don't know if they disclose all of that. It was a good investment. I, I would say it's a very good investment for Apollo. Uh, but you know, what you do know is that Apollo sold its stake, I think, in the, somewhere in the 90s. You can, I, I forget the exact price. It was good for Apollo. Stock's now about double that. So it's been kind of a win-win investment for Liberty as well. And then you went through this crazy M&A process where for years you were trying to acquire Time Warner Cable, something that I spent 80% of my time on for several years as a reporter of Tech Media Telecom M&A. And there's no bitterness in his voice. I, I mean, no, it's honestly, it was a fascinating turn of event. And ultimately, Charter emerges with Time Warner Cable. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that process was like from your perspective, the twists and turns of the M&A process. Well, it was very time-consuming, <laughs> more than I expected. Incredible twists and turns. I mean, I, there's been a lot of drama and deals I've worked on over the years. I wouldn't necessarily say the drama here was, it, it was, there were dramatic points. But what made it perhaps more dramatic was just these are larger transactions and more high-profile ones. What was the most dramatic point from your perspective? I'd say when we found out Comcast uh, was going to buy Time Warner. Definitely. Uh, that was we, the most dramatic from my I perspective. Think, I think we were, I think blindsided is probably an understatement. 
uh, you know, in terms of how, you know, just, when that happened. Just briefly, for listeners that didn't follow this, basically what was happening was that Charter and Comcast were actually in talks together to potentially split up Time Warner Cable. And then in like a slew of seven days, Comcast basically decided to go out on their own and acquire all of Time Warner Cable really behind Charter's back. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say, yeah. So that was that was a surprise, and um, that was definitely the biggest shock uh, in the whole transaction. I guess in the end, you know, you know, we are where we are at this point. So hopefully, you know, if if we get regulatory approval, uh, things will have worked out okay. Uh, it's six years now as an independent firm. I was curious as to what sort of culture you tried to instill in your staff, and how similar is it to Apollo? Uh, on the one hand, uh, what what we've brought, I think, from Apollo is, you know, real culture around the investment philosophy, around great asymmetric risk reward investing, around understanding where to find those opportunities across the capital structure, and and the mindset of hustle and creativity that you need to outperform. I think that you know, culturally, though, um, it's a it's a gentler culture at Searchlight is probably one way to put it. And I think that's a reflection of the founders. Um, it's a reflection of our age and our generation. You know, it's it's a little bit, you know, it's more flat. It's very collegial. You know, ideas are, there's a really good meritocracy of ideas. And and I'd say, you know, also when, when we're, in, we're, we've been good partners on a lot of deals. So it's it's interesting on the private equity side. You know, the Hunter owners stayed in for almost half the company when we bought it. The Roots founders stayed in for a very big stake when we bought that business. Liberty is our partner. We have partners on a lot of deals. You know, we're good listeners, and we try to bring the best uh, from them and from us in, in, in partnerships, which is important. And and so those are some of the maybe some of the things we emphasize a little bit more. Eric Zinteroffer, co-founder of the private equity firm Searchlight Capital Partners and private equity reporter here at Bloomberg, Kyle Porter. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Very interesting. Thank you. Thanks. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real time. And until then, find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to the podcast. And also take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Plus, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949, Kyle's at at Kyle Porter, that's K-I-E-L, Porter, and Ed Hammond is at Ed Hammond NY. Next week, we've got Kate Ambrose on the show, the president of the Latin American Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, so we're sticking with our private equity theme but changing continents. That'll be a great episode for listeners interested in learning what the investment landscape is like currently in countries like Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina. See you then. We at Bloomberg are proud of our new and growing slate of original content podcasts. They include Benchmark, a jargon-free dive into the stories that drive the global economy. It's hosted by Tori Stilwell, Aki Ito, and Dan Moss. Odd Lots, hosted by Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway, takes you on a not-so-random walk through hot topics in markets, finance, and economics. And each week, Bloomberg M&A reporter Alex Sherman discusses market-moving news about mergers in Deal of the Week. From Washington and points in between, meantime, 
we showcase the intersection of politics and pop culture with Culture Caucus, hosted by John Heilman and Will Leach from Bloomberg Politics. And then there's Masters in Politics, hosted by veteran TV producers Tammy Haddad and Betsy Fisher-Martin. This bi-weekly podcast features extended conversations with candidates, campaign strategists, and journalists. You can find all these podcasts on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and any one of your very favorite podcast platforms.